0: Welcome to the MindBeat Podcast by Effective School Solutions. I'm your host, Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions.
1: And I'm your co-host, Lane Whitaker, Senior Director, Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions.
0: The MindBeat podcast is the definitive source for all topics related to school-based mental health. From sharing best practices to highlighting innovative school districts to keeping track of legislation, MindBeat is the go-to source for educators and administrators looking to implement a mental health care continuum. Together, we can make a difference in school-based mental health care and in the lives of students, families, and educators. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining another episode of the MindBee podcast. I'm Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions.
1: And I'm Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions.
0: We are incredibly excited to have you with us today. We've got a great episode. Former Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan is going to be joining us uh, shortly. We're really excited for a yes. great, great conversation that we're going to be having to uh, uh, with him. He's going to be talking about his uh, uh, kind of lifetime in in public service, reflecting on some of the uh, challenges going on with. Uh, uh, mental health and a variety of uh, other other kind of um, uh, topical education issues. So definitely stay tuned for uh, for that. How you doing, Lynn?
1: I'm doing great because the Eagles are going to the Super Bowl again, the second time in five years. We, we, we should we should
0: explain that our podcast producers don't like us talking about timely and topical uh, things because by the time you're listening to this, this the Super true. Bowl probably will have passed. And Lane and I talked beforehand about maybe <laughs> maybe kind of recording two versions of this, one like talking as if the Eagles mm-hmm. had won the Super Bowl. And Mm -hmm. one talking as if the Eagles had lost the Super Bowl. I immediately shot that down. But we both agreed that the second one would depress us. (laughs) We're not putting that in the atmosphere. And and we we see no way that they're going to lose, right? There's no way.
1: Not my birds. Yeah. No way. But I just think there's a lot of cool storylines for the Super Bowl. I think uh, it's really cool that, you know, we're playing Andy Reid, who was our longtime coach and uh, now a Super Bowl winner himself out there. I think it's cool that we have the first Super Bowl with two starting uh, black quarterbacks. I think it's a, uh, the first Super Bowl where we've had two brothers face off. Uh, it's a pretty there's a pretty cool couple storylines. Yeah, going Andy on for this Andy
0: Reid versus his former team, and mm-hmm. uh, I feel like we should to to really tie it to the theme of of mind beat in general. We should talk yeah. about kind of the role of the Eagles on our personal mental health. I don't know how you feel, <laughs> but like I, I do I do wonder sometimes like why do I watch football? Do I really do I really enjoy it? Does it actually uh, make my life better? I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it does, but uh, I,
1: I, I do what, it anyways. What I appreciate about sports, particularly in Philadelphia, is that there's this camaraderie that you could be with complete strangers at a game. And when we're winning, it's all love. We are hugging and kissing each other and high fiving and love that camaraderie anywhere in the city. If you're wearing a you know any type of paraphernalia, people are like Go Birds, and you know we have this like mutual understanding uh, with complete strangers. So I just love that about about sports in general. But definitely being an Eagles fan, I think that, um, yes, when when they lose and there was a lot of losing for a while there before (laughs) before the Super Bowl, before the first win, Um, I tried not to get too low. You know what I mean? It just, you know, we'll we'll do better next time kind of thing. I know for some people it can really cause some serious stress in their life, but I love to get hype and excited when we're winning. So, yeah. you know, I think that for people who do allow it to ruin your day or your week or whatever, you got to get that in check.
0: I have, I have some great <laughs> Eagles memories, but I also have like very clear memories of like crushing Eagles losses that are probably stuck with me kind of as much as I'm the, sure uh, as, the, as, the, <laughs> as the victory. So uh, I'm sure all right, well, why don't we why don't we jump right in? We're going to start with our top three as we do every episode. We're going to get started uh, with uh, three big ideas in response to a key mental health question. Today's top three, Elaine, is top three characteristics of tier three mental health programs. So when we talk about tier three mental health programs, we're talking about mental health programming aligned to a multi-tiered systems of support model. And I think one of the common themes that we see with a lot of districts that we speak to is, is kind of variation around the definition of tier three. So I thought it might be helpful to share like what would we see as kind of those critical and distinguishing elements of a true tier three program. I think the first question is: who is tier three mental health programming for? Mm-hmm. This is generally the highest level of care for mental health care that can be offered within a school setting. And often we're talking about students who are at risk of being outplaced to a private therapeutic day school outside of the district. It could be for students returning from a private therapeutic day school. Um, and the, the, the three key things that we would see as essential to Tier 3 programming, number one would be kind of a wraparound model with multiple modalities of care and multiple therapeutic touch points. So what we always try to remind districts on when it comes to Tier 3 care, this is not random acts of therapy. This is not a drop-in mental health clinic. This is not kind of meeting with a therapist once a month. This is a therapist embedded within a school building and really kind of built into a child's school day. So we kind of think about really good Tier 3 care as almost like a mental health elective Mm -hmm. built into the school day. Individual therapy, group therapy, family therapy, the availability of those clinicians to be available for urgent intervention. So a wraparound model, number one. The second piece is kind of like a really good quality and risk management function. So generally with tier 3 students you're talking about, you know, students who have uh, you know, complex mental health challenges and we want to make sure that there are multiple sets of eyes uh, kind of reviewing that student's chart and identifying uh, the potential for any high risk issues. So uh, here at ESS, we have a we have a quality management team that actually provides kind of another kind of review on all of our uh, student student charts and just helps us to uh, uh, identify whether an escalation to a higher level of care for a student is necessary. And I think related to that, the third thing I'd point out is just really strong clinical supervision, great mental health in a school setting. Uh, almost needs to adhere to kind of like a medical model in some ways. And if you think about like any hospital show that you've watched, uh, you know. Like ER or Gray's Anatomy or something like that. You've got you know the the the, uh, physician treating the the uh, patient, and then you've got like the attending, right? The Mm -hmm. attending physician is doing the rounds every morning and kind of doing a secondary review on every child's case. And that that clinical supervision piece is really, really important. I think one of the things we observe a lot of times in a school setting is schools who do this on their own might have therapists that they've hired, but oftentimes they don't have a trained clinical supervisor to oversee those individuals. Those therapists might roll up to someone in the administration who has great background, maybe in an academic subject, maybe in special education, but doesn't necessarily have any formal training in in mental health. So that strong, well-defined clinical supervision vision function, I would say is the, the third thing. So those are um, our top three for today, top three characteristics of tier three mental health programs.
1: I think that's a solid list. And what's so great is when, when all those things are in place and really working, then it really frees up the administration of a building or a district to tend to tier two kids or to uh, the greater population when the kids with the highest needs are really being accommodated at a high level. So um, really has a positive impact on the entire school uh, community.
0: Great, yeah. point. Great
1: point. So we're moving on to the news. In the
0: news. In, In the, the news.
1: news. So this week, um, we're talking about an article called, Are Districts Frugal or Simply Confused when it comes to ESSER spending? This is a timely uh, article because we're going to be uh, again talking to Arnie Duncan. Um, a little bit later on about some of these topics. But, uh, yeah, this article is, uh, commissioned by Kelly Education and, uh, written by district administration. And basically it talks about how they highlight a couple of districts in particular, Los Angeles, Houston, Wake County, North Carolina, to name a few. Uh, and they're really just showing how much ester spending that they have available to them, which is very large amounts and that they're really underspending and underutilizing those funds. And so it begged the question, are, are districts confused about what to do when it comes to spending? Do they need more direction? Um, and so it, it does beg the question. We, you know, we also talk about, are these things sustainable? Um, so I think that a lot of districts may try to hang on to this money thinking, Oh, what are, you know, we need to use it for this or that, or let's hang on to it. But these, these budgets don't last long as you've really got to, to, to spend it. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting article. Uh, asked some interesting questions, and uh, it really didn't have an, an ultimate answer. It was just sort of kind of putting that question out there for you to, to think about to put, put that in the atmosphere. And,
0: yeah, I think this yeah. is. I think this is a big deal. So the ESSER mm-hmm. funds that our listeners might be aware of, or you know, those COVID relief funds that are mm-hmm. out there to um, you know help districts kind of recover from the 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 pandemic. I mean, historic infusion of dollars kind of into the education system, and it is very. We we I would see this as very binary right now. I think we see some districts that have like sixty percent of their funds kind of left over. Mm-hmm. Um, some districts I think have completely spent their funds, and even though there's you know eighteen months left to go before the the funds kind of expire, they're they're still kind of. Uh, uh, they're still they're still out there. I mean, another element that I think is out there has been staffing. I know staffing and availability of of staff has been kind of a, a big thing. And then mm-hmm. I, I think you're pointing out another one, which is like concern on the part of districts about spending the dollars if they don't have a path to, you know continue to sustain things kind mm-hmm. of over 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 time. And and I, I have mixed feelings about that because I, I know that sustainability is really, really important. That being said, it is a shame for these dollars that could be going uh to you know immediate benefit for for students or not necessarily uh kind of being being spent in the in the way that they they should i think what is really really important is you know i think congress and our state legislatures also need to think about sustainability in an area like mental health i think because if we are using esser funds to seed or bootstrap a mental health initiative You know, I think, unfortunately, we all, you know, who who work in this field seem to have a high level of confidence that, you know, the mental health challenges experienced by students are going to persist long after, you know, the ESSER fund kind of expiration date. So what are we doing from a policy standpoint? What are we doing as a society standpoint to make sure we're prioritizing, you know, these important initiatives for young people and getting those more sustainable funding sources kind of in place over the long term?
1: And for staff as well, you just pointed out that there's some, a lot of staffing issues in districts and that teachers are leaving the field in droves. And I think that they also have a lot of mental health issues, which accounts for those uh, leaving. And that's, you know, there should be a portion of these ESSER funds that are just committed to supporting the mental health of, of educators and, and school staff who have also been traumatized and, um, you know, experiencing a lot of mental health challenges as a result of the pandemic and the the increasing challenging behaviors of their students, Uh, I think a lot of staff feel unsupported. And so, you know, we need to consider that They create the weather in the classroom and their mental health is equally as important to the to the students. And we need to support them more, too. So it's just another way that Esther funds should be looked at for spending Um, and spend the money, spend the money. You have it. Spend it (laughs) to figure it out. There's so much resources out here. There's so many people that need the help spend the money while we have it And, and then look for sustainable ways to maintain these services and keep staff happy so they're not leaving in droves.
0: Yeah, no, great, great point. Okay, we are uh, incredibly excited to welcome today a very, very ah. special guest. Uh, Arnie Duncan uh, is with us today. Uh, Arnie served as the U.S. Secretary of Education from 2009 to 2015 as part of the Obama administration. Prior to that, uh, he served as the CEO of Chicago Public Schools from 2001 to 2008. Uh, he won praise for uniting the city's stakeholders behind an education agenda that included opening 100 new schools, expanding after school, summer learning, early childhood and college access programs, dramatically boosting the caliber of teachers and building public-private partnerships around a variety of education initiatives. He's continued on to do some incredibly impactful work right now. He's currently leading Chicago Cred, a nonprofit trying to achieve a transformative reduction in gun violence in Chicago. Uh, They're they're working in partnership with local business leaders, community organizers, and other nonprofit groups. And the goal here is really to provide outreach, therapeutic uh, support, education, and employment opportunities for the young men most likely to be engaged in gun violence. He's also the managing partner at Emerson Collective, an organization dedicated to removing barriers so people can live life to their full potential. Uh, He graduated magna cum laude from Harvard in 1987, majoring in sociology, Big Hoops fan, Hoops player, served as co-captain of the basketball team, was named a first-team academic All-American. Maybe we'll work a little basketball talk into the conversation later <laughs> on. Uh, Arnie, uh, so privileged to have you with us today. Thank you so much for being with us. Well,
2: thanks for the opportunity. Always happy to talk Hoops.
0: <laughs> excellent, excellent. So, we'll, 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 I'm assuming you're a Bulls fan?
2: Ah, yeah, I'm a little bit of a fair-weather fan. I'm okay. a fan of Golden State these days. Got it, the, uh, got it, got it. Okay. Grew up loving the Bulls. Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: We'll get a little Steph Curry, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson (laughs) talking. Can't blame you for that. (laughs) Um, Well, again, uh, welcome. Uh, Maybe we'd love to start off just uh, you've had one of the great journeys, I think, in American education over the past 20, 30 years. Could you talk a little bit about how you first got into education? What led you into the into the field?
2: Sure. So, I grew up on the, the campus of the University of Chicago. My dad taught at the University was a psychology professor. I lived two blocks from where I grew up, so it's really good to be home. And my mother ran an inner-city tutoring program that was only like 12 blocks from our house. We used to walk there some days, but was sort of a world away in terms of, uh, you know, the across the invisible barrier between middle-class integrated Hyde Park, 47th Street it was that barrier, and all black, all poor, North Cameron, Oakland. Her program was on 46th and she raised my sister and brother and I as a part of her program from the time we were born. So we were going to an after-school program way before we ever went to regular school. And that was just a, a formative experience and just seeing the, the, the opportunities my friends during the school day had but my, and the lack of opportunities my friends in the afternoon had, just that stark contrast walking between those two worlds every day shaped all of us. So both my parents are educators, my, my sister, brother, and I went into education a um, joke is actually not funny. We didn't have a TV as a kid. We, we weren't allowed to watch TV. We had a lot of books in the house. And I used to have to sneak to a friend's house to watch TV once in a while. But this is just uh, our, our family's work and trying to create opportunity, educational opportunity, particularly for underserved you know, kids and communities. That's, that's always been uh, my heart and my passion. That's been, I think, the theme throughout, throughout my entire life
0: got it got it so you so you go to college and do you know at that point you know starting at Harvard that you wanted to go on a path out of college leading into education or or like a lot of you know 18 to 22 year olds you just didn't didn't know looking to have a good time and you'll figure it out a little bit later
2: <laughs> yeah it's a really good question I, I don't know, maybe somewhere in the middle of that spectrum so I actually took a year off between my junior and senior year which was a little non-traditional there weren't sort of gap years back then and I worked full-time in my mother's program and actually wrote, wrote my senior thesis about it and I think I was really testing myself. Most of my friends were becoming you know, investment bankers or applying to law school. And I think I wanted to test myself. Was this something that was a part of who I was or was it actually who I was? Mm-hmm. And I think during that year, I didn't know what it meant. You know, My mother had volunteered all her life for 50 years. had to figure out a way to make a living. But I, I, I think I, some, someplace down deep, I figured out this is what I wanted to do. Um, coming out of college, you know, this is how not smart I am. My dream was to be a professional basketball player, so I, I didn't interview for any jobs. I had no, no security, no anything, and uh, we got lucky enough to play professionally. I cut a couple of times here in the United States, played professionally for four years in Australia, and then came back to set up a I Have a Dream program and, and you know, build on an education thing. So I always had sort of those two passions of, of basketball, but education and working with kids. And that that year off was, I think, a real test for me. And it helped me, I think, understand at a deep level what what I was and what I wanted to do in my life.
0: Got it. Got it. And it's really, really interesting that as you kind of went on that carousel, you kind of ended up where you began, you know, tying back to all those formative experiences that you had through your mom's tutoring program. So it's interesting how it kind of came full circle and kind of water seeks its own level, I guess.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Just for me now to be back home and back in community, you know, back in the neighborhoods, it's... uh, I, I needed it. I needed to do that. So it feels very, very good to be home.
1: Excellent. So, you know, as former education secretary, you have a really unique perspective on the trajectory of like U.S. education over the last couple of decades. So when you look at the state of school-based mental health today, how would you assess it? What do you think is the state of affairs? And, and what do you think have been the biggest changes?
2: Well, obviously, the pandemic was just devastating it. So many levels, and you know, from loss of life to you know, debilitating illnesses, you know, changing people's lives, loss of educational opportunity. We can talk about all of this, but I don't ever want to say it's a silver lining. I don't want to call it a silver lining, but what it did create, I think, is a, an awareness of the critical need to take care of people's, you know, physical and social and emotional health. And uh, that need has always been there. Um, it It increased. It was exacerbated by the stress and trauma and loss during the pandemic. But it's not going anywhere. And what I've always said is for me that, you know, I'm always going to be always going to be the guy fighting for high academic standards and having access to rigorous coursework, particularly in our communities. But the foundation, the house upon all that, all that is built is really physical and social, emotional health. And you know, my mother always had a saying, if, you know, if, a, if a child's stomach is rumbling, it's, it's hard to concentrate. And that was right. And she, she fed every kid every day the second they walked into the center and just tried to take, you know, if kids need eyeglasses, you need them eyeglasses. But if they're dealing with, you know, stress, if they're dealing with trauma, if they're dealing with challenges at home, if they're dealing with bullying, if they are issues, at, you know, in the school, the community, um, it's hard to concentrate on algebra, trig, and biology, you know, AP physics. And so for me, building this foundation of meeting kids where they are, taking care of those physical and social emotional needs, um, not hiding from it, not sweeping under the rug. I would add teachers as well, who have been through so much. It's not just the students as a staff. Um, For me, if we don't do this, we can't get to where we go, uh, where we want to go educationally. And so it's critically important. I'm glad people are understanding that now more than ever. Um, are we doing enough? No. Are we doing more than we have in the past? Yes. And we need to continue to get better. And whether it's you know, physically, whether it's virtually, whether it's hybrid, there are lots of ways to to help kids in terms of their you know social emotional well being. Um, but the goal, but we have to know where every kid is at and meet them exactly where they are.
0: So Arnie, when it comes to taking the next step with school based mental health, are there specific kind of gaps or or kind of areas for improvement you see? And if you if there's a you know state or federal Legislator, policymaker, listening to this. What are what are some of the things that you think should be on the radar screen of, of policymakers?
2: Yeah, I just the short answer is easy to say, it's hard to do. For me, this has to be as the availability of access to to those services has to be as ubiquitous as access to to running water, as access to electricity, and whether it's a you know a, a five year old or a thirteen year old or eighteen year old or you know, you know we're primarily talking k-12 but college students as well um there's just a desperate need now and so for me this is not an add-on it's not an extracurricular it's not a nice to have it's a must-have and again not everyone needs it but everyone needs to have access to it and people might need you know no services one day and need a whole whole bunch of support the next day because something has happened in their life and so i think just really understanding that just as we teach you know, reading and writing and math and English and social studies, this has to be core. And I often worry that things like this are so important, um, not always, but, but too often, there's greater access amongst the wealthy. And so the haves get more and the have nots don't. And whether it's a child in a wealthy community, whether it's a child, you know, inner city Chicago or Cleveland or Detroit, whether it's a child in Appalachia, or a child in Native American reservation, I can make a pretty compelling case that they need more access to more comprehensive services. And so I don't want this to be a a case of the haves and the have nots. Like I said, I want this to be universal. I want it to be ubiquitous.
0: So if we want to get to that level of ubiquity and that level of, of kind of equity, what does that need to look like from a funding standpoint? Because when I think about most of our tried and true kind of federal funding sources, be it Title I, IDEA, et cetera, those things can be used for mental health, but they can also be used for a lot of other things that are competing for the same dollars. Is there are, are we Do we need to be on a path for a more formal kind of federal program targeted towards mental health dollars and mental health access?
2: It's a great question. As you know, on the K 12 side, the federal money is usually only 8 to 10% of funding for any school or school district. It's usually 40, you know, 50% coming from this, the state and 40, 50% coming from the local community. So, this is not one where I'm looking at one source or you know, look just at the federal side. For me, at every level, local funding, state funding, uh, national funding at the federal level, everyone needs to be thinking about. You know, I'm no longer running the Chicago Public Schools. My, my good friend Pedro is. But, you know, as superintendents around the country, I think they're understanding how critically important this is. And, yes, you have to make hard choices in terms of budget priorities. But th- I think this is you know, has to be at the top of everybody's list today. Um, and I think there's, a gr- there's an increasing awareness of that. So would it be great to increase funding? Absolutely. I'm always going to be a great advocate for, for more funding for, for public education. But for me, this is not something that we can wait for some new federal funding stream. I don't want to. We don't. We don't have the luxury of waiting. We can't afford to do that. We have to figure it out now and every day going forward.
1: Well, that's actually a great segue into my question. So, when you were in the Obama administration, you presided over the ARA funding, which, for our listeners that may not know, that was the funding in response to the financial crisis uh, early on in that administration. And now we've got the ESSER funds, uh, which are a response to COVID uh, pandemic. So. You know, you just were starting to say that we have to act now. What do you think were the lessons learned about creating sustainable funding? Um, You know, after after ARA, you know, and now we're running out of ESSER funds soon.
2: Yeah, so that is a great question. So the ESSER funds, we, we put out a lot of money, and the ESSER funds are a whole different level. Right. So school districts have, have you know significantly more money than they've ever had. But to your point, it's time limited. And so for me, I'm always looking at things like this. They have to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. So those those ESSER funds, for me, that's sort of more one-time funding. So maybe that's building upgrades. I've been a big advocate for high-dosage tutoring and helping kids catch up who who, fell significantly far behind during the pandemic. A lot of kids just left school. So sending teachers and social workers and counselors to their homes to bring them back into school. I desperately worry about that. But for me, this can't, this funding for children's social, emotional health and well-being, this can't be one-time funding. This has to be recurring, you know, continual funding. And so ESSA can maybe get you started. And I know schools have increased you know, social workers and counselors and access to stuff online. But again, I desperately hope that doesn't disappear when the funding does. That has to be built into your basic funding formula, this recurring revenue, not one-time revenue.
0: Got it. Got it. So even if you did use ESSER funding to essentially seed a mental health initiative or kind of bootstrap it, it sounds like now's the time to really think through kind of how you come up with a more sustainable path for funding those initiatives over the long term.
2: That's exactly right. And if that goes away, then we do our, our children a our, our great disservice,
1: quite frankly.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: For sure. I echo your earlier sentiments. So, you know, my my big thing is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so to your point, if we're not addressing these mental health needs, there's no pathway to academics into that high achieving academic success that I know is important to all of us. We'll never get there if we don't first address these basic mental health needs that, uh, you know, that we've got a Maslow before we bloom. Right.
2: This is exactly right. This is this is the foundation. This is this is nothing more important. So, Arnie, if we broaden the
0: conversation a little bit and, and take, a, take a step back in time, what are you proudest of when you reflect on your time as Secretary of Education in the Obama administration?
2: Uh, always uh, lots of successes and, and lots of failures. So I'm happy to talk on both sides of the ledger if you want. But uh, things I'm you know, proud of, uh, just give you a couple a couple of different levels, we, we dramatically increase funding for high-quality early childhood education. I think that's one of the best things we can do is get our babies off to a, to a great start. And so, uh, you know, being able to get hundreds of thousands of additional children a chance to, ha- you know, have access to, to pre-K and to kindergarten, ready to be successful academically, socially, emotionally, that was a huge deal. K to 12, we were able to get high school graduation rates to all-time highs and be clear they're still not high enough. We got a long way to go, but to see every subgroup of students, white students, black students, Latino students, you know, uh, LEP students, special needs students, Students who live below poverty line. See every group of students, their graduation rates increasing was very very rewarding. Um, we put a lot of money with the Department of Labor behind community colleges, and I think they're sort of an unrecognized, sometimes un- unpolished gem on the education continuum. And a uh, high school diploma is critical now, but it's not sufficient. Some form of learning has to you know be beyond that. And so to see uh, great community colleges become you know regional economic engines and driving. The, the you know the the increase of, of, of high wage high skilled jobs in their communities that was fantastic and then we we dramatically increased Pell grants without going back to taxpayers for nickel We're able will see an additional million students of color go on to college so those are things that' I'm extraordinarily proud of and when you go to DC you also always wonder if you can get anything done and i think i would have signed up to, to if, if people told me i can only do one of those things i still would have done it quite happily but to see all those things happen it's just a you know, incredibly rewarding. Uh, just a joy to have that opportunity, and but still, again, a, a long, a long way to go uh, in all aspects of education. Today, this is no mission accomplished moment by by any stretch.
1: Still, there's a lot to be proud of, and uh, we do thank you for your service. Uh, what are some of those things that you felt like you would have liked to have made more progress on before the end of your administration?
2: Yeah, I'll give you give you three of those as well. So I actually put early childhood education in both camps, and so we were able to increase significantly access. But around the country, um, again, I would love you there to be universal access, and we weren't able to get the kind of funding from our our Republican friends in in Congress to to, to help every child around the around the country. And, I never forget. There's a call I had with Governor Bryan from Mississippi, who was a you know conservative Republican, and we we may disagree on some issues, but he was broken hearted that we couldn't get more money to Mississippi for early child education. Children everywhere deserve, it, but no one deserves it more than children in Mississippi. And so he desperately wanted you know more resources. We desperately wanted to give it to him. We just couldn't get you know his Republican colleagues from Mississippi uh, in Congress to to, to support us in, in getting that money. And so that that was something that. We didn't get as far as I wanted. Um, secondly, I desperately wanted some kind of immigration reform to pass, which for us would have been access to, uh, to, to, to uh, financial aid for college for dreamers. And the fact is as a nation, we let so many students who have you know, lived here all their lives, many are you know, student leaders, valedictorians, com- you know, community leaders, just slam shut the door of opportunity once they graduate from high school we're just cutting off our nose to spite our face. These are future job creators and innovators and entrepreneurs and heartbreaking to me that we didn't get anything done there. And then the final one is, is you know, these are all tougher issues, it's very personal, just and I'm not saying anything out of school here. President Obama's talked about this publicly, I've talked about it, he, you know, President Obama dealt with the hardest issues on the planet by definition. Um, his hardest day in D.C., uh, my hardest day was the day of the Sandy Hook massacre mm. in Newtown, Connecticut. Um, he went down the next day. At that point, Vice President Biden, now President Biden, I went down and a few days later and met with those families and went to the funeral of that, that principal, Don Hogscronger. Hog it's it actually you know, just recently was, was a 10-year, 10th anniversary, unfortunately, of that massacre. And the fact that we got nothing done, zero done, in terms of you know, protecting our, our children and families and schools from gun violence and the fact that the school shootings, mass shootings, just continue unabated. It's, uh, it's mind-boggling to me. It's just beyond heartbreaking. It doesn't happen in other countries. This is a uniquely American problem. So those, those three things, uh, getting more money, more resources for, for high-quality pre-K, um, getting federal financial aid for dreamers, and, and just having our children be able to grow up <laughs> free of the fear and trauma of gun violence, those are things I desperately wish that, that we had been able to accomplish. And, and it still hasn't happened, frankly.
0: Marty, thanks for for sharing those. I mean, the political dynamics around education are interesting. There's clear divides. It also seems like there's some remnants historically of bipartisanship when it comes to to education. Are there certain areas that make you optimistic that there's opportunity for bipartisan cooperation here as we go into the next, like, you know, two, four years?
2: Yeah, the the thing that always just troubles me is for me, there's nothing Democratic or Republican or liberal conservative about Giving children access to have a great education. You know who benefits when students drop out of high school? Uh, who benefits when, when we don't have an educated workforce? And so I always say that you know a great military, a strong military is our, our best defense. But a great a great educational system is our best offense. And I just desperately hope uh, that folks can come together of common of, of common you know goodwill. And just create better educational opportunities. So, I'll just you know, put out a couple goals. You know, one would be to have you know, high quality pre K be uh, you know, accessible and affordable for everyone. A second goal would be to have high school graduation rates get up to 90% for the country. And again, that's not enough, but the goal. A third would be to learn, lead the world in college completion, whether that's at four universities or two community colleges. And if we could unite as a country behind those goals, we could have lots of debate and you know, local experimentation or whatever around the, 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 the strategic ways to accomplish those goals, how to, how to execute against them. But I just desperately wish as a country, again, for me, those are nation building goals. And so that's my hope. I, I can't quite see, say I've, I've seen that happen, but I hope as a country we'll come to our senses and understand that, you know, the, the, the good jobs, the high wage, high school jobs, we live in a flat world now. They can go anywhere. I, I, I definitely want them in our country, in our communities, where they can go to India or China or you know, South Korea or Singapore, anywhere. We gotta fight for those jobs. And the only way those jobs are gonna be here is if we have the best educated workforce in the world. And so I, 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 hope, I hope we can unite behind how we get there. Just give you one concrete example on the bipartisan side. We talked a lot about making community college affordable, and we put a lot of money behind it, but basically free but we didn't do that as administration. The state that did that was Tennessee. Um, that was led at the time by Governor Haslam, who happens to be Republican. Um, so he took what was theoretically a democratic idea, he actually executed it, implemented it, um, because he didn't see things politically. He just saw that his best asset in his, in his, co- in his state, his best resource, were his people. And he wanted to, 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 to educate that. And so that's just one concrete example of where you put politics aside you just figure things out And he was an amazing uh, education governor, amazing education leader in that state, still close to him, Um, happened to be a Republican. Who who cares? You know, just he had a heart for for his people, heart for students, heart for his state. He did the right thing. That's a great, great example.
1: So I know our time is is getting short, so I want to just pivot a little bit and take the opportunity to have you share um, with our listeners a little bit about the work that you're doing with the Chicago Creed and the Emerson Collective. Is there anything that you can highlight for us?
2: Sure, I'll, I'll do it briefly, and this is you know, a bit of coming from a place of pain, quite frankly, but unfortunately, gun violence is something that's haunted me all my life here in Chicago. We, I lost friends when I was a teen, you know, going up playing basketball on the south and west sides, and then fast forward to seven and a half years I've led to Chicago Public Schools, lots I'm proud of, and we can talk about those, <laughs> that story on another podcast if you want. But during my watch, in my seven and a half years, on average, we had a, a child, a student killed every two weeks due to gun violence here in Chicago. It's was a staggering rate of loss. And thank goodness never in a school, but, you know, at, at home, <laughs> the corner store, walking down the block, going home on a bus. And when I left to go to D.C. very naively, I thought we were rock bottom. I thought it couldn't get worse. And unfortunately, seven years, you know, my, our family was in D.C. Things got a lot worse here in the city. So for me, just being a Chicago boy coming home, this felt like the crisis facing the city, didn't feel we were addressing it. So set up Chicago cred to work with the young men and women on the south and west sides who are most at risk of shooting and being shot. And we've been at it six years and learned a lot of tough lessons. This is the, the hardest work I've ever done. It's frankly the most heartbreaking and the most humbling, but it's also the most inspiring and meaningful. And so we've worked with over a thousand men and women now um, we're seeing very, very significant decreases in gun violence in the communities we're working. So that's you know, very, very encouraging. Um, remarkable to see the transformation of people putting down the guns and putting in place peace treaties and really becoming the community assets they want to be. And so we're trying to scale and see if we continue to, to bring the, the city's level of violence down um, as, as a whole and working very hard with amazing community partners around the country to give people a chance to, to put down the guns and build productive lives.
0: On, the, on, on, on that initiative, Arnie, what does that playbook look like? Uh, if you could speak about that briefly, is that direct support kind of with those 500 or 1,000 kind of young people that you mentioned? Is that community awareness campaigns? What's the general blueprint?
2: No, no, this is very nitty gritty, very hands-on. So we, we have eight centers across the city. Um working with with young men, we now have a women's program, and unfortunately, because people shooting being shot are getting younger, we're down to working with thirteen years year olds as well. Mm-hmm. So with teens. And so this is very much hands on. Everyone gets a life coach. Um, everyone gets a clinician, and working through that trauma is just, you know critically important. We have lots and lots of folks get high school diplomas. We do these big uh, graduation ceremonies, they're really powerful. And then we have a jobs program at the end. So folks spend about a year with us and really trying to help them stabilize and grow and, and heal. And then um, we, we have about 43, 44 employers who hire our folks at the back end. And having that, that job opportunity is so important. And so it's a comprehensive approach. We learn by doing. It. We make lots of mistakes. I'm sure we're making lots of mistakes today and tomorrow. But we just we keep working and we co-design with the men and women we're working with. We I always say these are men; they're grown. They're not little kids. And the last thing we want to do is waste their time. So we're just constantly asking what's working, what's not, refining. And, and again, seeing seeing their transformations it's, 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 I can't tell you how how powerful it is. And we build our team and expand. About half our staff that we hire now are former participants, our alumni who are now outreach workers and life coaches and helping out, and just to, to have that pipeline of talents—it's extraordinary to see how far folks have come.
0: Well, it sounds As like you know. incredible and impactful work. So, just appreciate your leadership uh, in this right. in this in this area. Uh, I know we're running short on time. Final question that we ask all of our, our guests: What's in your go-to mental health toolkit? How do you kind of you know kind of re- regulate yourself on a day-to-day basis?
2: Well, it's a it's a great question, and we deal unfortunately with a with a lot of trauma, including quite frankly in the past couple of days. And so, it's something I'm I'm very very aware of, of, trying to you know take care of myself, and also take care of the team. I don't I don't love the term self care because we're all this together. So how we build a you know a, a trauma informed group, and we, we we see a lot and deal with a lot, so I. Uh, we talked about bath, talked about basketball. I try and you know, go play basketball almost every morning and just you know have that camaraderie and break a sweat. and I'm trying and do breathing stuff, mindfulness stuff. Um, I talk to a counselor on an ongoing basis just to work through through stuff that I'm dealing with. And so really trying to uh, make sure that i'm I'm bringing my best self to some some very, very tough situations. And they, they, it does take a toll. Um, there's a cumulative impact. And like I said, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. I had more sleep this night's and out than I did at DC because it's so so personal. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm acutely aware of how important it is to take care of my teammates and myself and, and working to do do that better uh, on an ongoing basis. Well,
0: Arnie, appreciate mm-hmm. yes. appreciate you, appreciate your incredible public service uh, throughout your 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 career and the impactful work that you're you're doing right now. We didn't get a chance to talk about basketball. We could have talked about the the Sixers and how I'm sure they're going to lose in the second round of the playoffs again. again, again. Seems to happen again. kind of every every year. And the, I'm sure the the, the you know uh, you know Golden State will go 41 and 0 in the second half of the season. But uh, <laughs> we'll see how it uh, how it plays out. But thank you so much for your yes, time and your you generosity with your time today. Mm-hmm. We appreciate it. Thanks for
1: opportunity
2: opportunity. Have a great day now. Take care. Take care. care.
0: So so great. What a great conversation with uh, Secretary uh, Arnie Arnie Duncan. Just uh, uh, you know, again, incredible uh, public servant, and like so thankful that he made the time to join us here on a. Uh, on on beat So I, I had a couple things that inspired me this week, but I'm going to make a I'm going to make a game time decision and and go back to uh, uh, the conversation with Arnie today. I mm. found that to be incredibly Good inspiring. Um, you know, I, I really love kind of the spirit of bipartisanship, the mm-hmm. fact that he kind of reflected on on ways in which he had worked across the aisle. Because I do think, as I as I mentioned previously, I do think that. Um, Education and and I think mental health as well is one of the areas in our society right now where there's some common ground. I think regardless Mm -hmm. of which side of the aisle that you're that you're on, as Arnie said, you know, kind of um, getting a strong education for our young people should be. Uh, something that like we should all we, we should can all agree all, on like, in, yeah. in theory be able to kind of <laughs> kind of get behind. So, right. but what a great what a great public servant. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about somebody who, with his intellect and and I think kind of academic background, literally could have done anything. And so the fact that he has kind of chosen a path to really focus on on public service, I think, is just a uh, uh, really uh, really inspiring and and uh, just you know a, a great kind of case study for how someone can make an impact in their career. So thank you again, uh, yeah. Arnie, for for joining us and. Uh, uh, great, great stuff. So yeah, um,
1: I would add to that too, that I was very inspired by his Chicago creed program. And, uh, um, I w- if we had more time with him, I would have asked how he could duplicate that in other cities that are also really struggling with gun violence. So I, I that is a really cool program. It was really holistic the way that he described their program. So
0: yeah, great opportunity to scale mm-hmm, that and kind mm-hmm. of make an impact in, in other, in other areas. So, uh, well, Lane, as always, uh, great to great to see you. You uh, as well. And, uh, until so another fun. episode, uh, uh, we will uh, uh, see you all next time. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on this latest episode of the Might Be podcast, and uh, we appreciate you listening. You can like us, you can follow us on the uh, social media. Um, platform of your choice and don't forget to give us uh, reviews we love reviews we love reading uh your comments and so if you have any uh, feedback for us please go into apple Podcasts, spotify wherever you're kind of listening to this and and uh, leave us a rating and a review thanks everyone have a great day
1: bye the mindbeat podcast is a production of effective school solutions mindbeat represents the opinions of duncan young lane whitaker and their guests on the show the content here should not be taken as medical advice The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, please call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline to SAMHSA National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP or your local health care provider.